On Sunday mornings, we've been going verse by verse through the book of Philippians together. So if you'll join me where we left off there in chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2. And if you do need a Bible, the gentlemen in the aisles do have a copy. Just let them know. They'd be happy to get one over to you to follow along in God's word with us this morning. Philippians 2, and we left off last week in verse 16, which would have us picking up in the 17th verse this morning, and we're actually going to go from verse 17 all the way down through the remainder of the chapter as we take in this next section. If you're turned to Philippians 2, verse 17, would you stand together with me out of honor of the Word of God as we read our passage of Scripture this morning? Philippians 2, beginning in verse 17, Paul says, Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one else like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father he served with me in the gospel. Therefore I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem because for the work of Christ he came close to death not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. And Father we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit now that he would just prepare us to have an ear to hear what your spirit would desire to say to this part of your church assembled here this morning. Lord, mentally, physically, spiritually, whatever it takes, would you ready us to receive what it is that you want to say to us through the word of God this morning. We ask you would bless your word as it goes forth and that your spirit would be our minister and our teacher and that we might hear you speak powerfully and directly to our hearts. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. We ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I'm sure probably that the majority of you in this room could honestly finish the following quote. And that's the statement, ask not what your country can do for you, but what, what? Right, but what you can do for your country. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Uh, that statement, which has become quite famous historically, was given at the inaugural speech of President John F. Kennedy. And consider the implication behind that really what I believe was an exhortation that he was giving in that moment to the citizens of this country. Ask not what your country can do for you, but instead what you can do for your country. It was really a clarion call to challenge the citizens of the United States to, in a sense, abandon human selfishness and instead aspire towards seeking to live other-centered within our country. And in the same way, God, in his word, repeatedly calls citizens of heaven, of which you and I, the Bible says, are, if we're Christians, God repeatedly in his word calls citizens of heaven really to live the same way, to seek to abandon our human selfishness and aspire instead to live an other-centered life. 
And the passage in front of us that we're looking at together this morning in the last section of Philippians 2 is a passage which really gives, as we look at it together, you'll see profitable instruction of how to live an other-centered life. Now, as a sidelight, let me say too, if you are here this morning and you have a heart for ministry, maybe you sense God's calling to ministry in some capacity in your life, whether to be a missionary, a, a pastor, or to serve in some capacity in ministry uh, beyond just living out your Christian life and, and ministering as we sh all should. We're all ministers. I would really encourage you to look at this as one of the fundamental passages in the Bible as far as what uh, a ministry servant uh, really should be like because it really gives great examples and to go through it and familiarize yourself with it, uh, I certainly would encourage you to do that. But really it's a passage that gives to all of us profitable instruction regarding how to live an other-centered life, which is what we all should be doing as we serve as king, uh, kingdom citizens here on this earth. Remember the background of chapter 2 as we've been moving through it together is a chapter dealing with how to live the Christian life. And Paul set forth Jesus as the supreme example of how to do that, how Jesus lived obediently as a man, as the supreme example of how to, to live a God-honoring life. But also, uh, dealing with how to live a Christian life, we saw last time that that is experience and how we all work out our own salvation. And after we're saved, the Bible says, okay, you're saved now. You've possessed salvation. You've experienced salvation. But now we saw last time Paul said, you got to work out your own salvation. And he says, do that with fear and trembling. But then he adds, not independent of God. It's not all on you. He says, you need to be fully dependent, realizing that actually it's God who's working in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And the vital reason that we live an obedient Christian life as a child of God in our world, Paul said as well in our prior verses, is so that in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation that you and I live in as followers of Jesus, that we could shine as lights in this world holding fast the word of life by what we speak and share with people and how we live a life really in many ways that is radically different than the way that our world does things in the midst of this crooked and perverse mentality of how it lives in our present generation. So again, as we don't live according to the patterns of the world, but we do live according to the patterns of the word of God, holding forth the word of God as the word of life, saying, no, not the way the world does things, but the way God says we should live is the way that we live. And as we do that, it will make us shine as lights like stars like luminaries amidst a black night sky that will make us stand out and be distinctive in such a way where people recognize that as we live other-centered in a world that is self-absorbed and that is self-serving, that will cause people to take notice of our lifestyle and it will draw attention and let us share light effectively. Now, in these verses we're looking at together, you almost get the sense as you read down through them that Paul's kind of basically in the midst of the letter here. He's almost kind of just kind of giving now like a progress report. And he's sharing some things with the Philippian believers uh, regarding matters in his own life and, and about Epaphroditus, who is the emissary that came from their church, now coming back. And it seems he was the one that brought the letter uh, uh, back to the Philippian believers and in so doing, kind of given this progress before, he sets before them at the same time three examples of men who truly were living an other-centered life, just like he asked and requested them to back in verse 3 and 4 where he gave that challenge saying, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, whether Paul purposely or, or just kind of indirectly uh, does this, nonetheless, he shows through these three examples, himself, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, he shows us three stellar examples that it is absolutely possible to live other-centered. 
course, we don't do it perfectly, but it is possible to live out with verse 3 and 4 ask of us as Christians. And he pictures what that looks like by his own life, by the life of Timothy and the life of this man, Epaphroditus. Come back with me to verse 17. As Paul begins, he says to them, Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And he says, For the same reason you join me, he says, Be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul kind of makes this request of the Philippian believers to celebrate together with him what he considered to be a valuable, worthwhile usage of his life. And he speaks of his life, notice in verse 17 there, in this kind of picturesque way of being, he says, poured out, he says, as a drink offering. Now, a drink offering was something you find it in the Old Testament, was a type of sacrifice among the many different ways of worship found in the Old Testament, after the altar was red hot, uh, many times after they would put an animal on the altar, they would also, as sort of a supplemental offering, an additional offering, they would also pour out what was called a drink offering. And basically after the altar was red hot with heat, they would pour out sometimes wine or water, upon that hot altar and if you've ever put you know a drop of water or oil in a hot sizzling pan you know how it just it just kind of evaporates instantaneously it just vaporizes and as you pour whatever liquid onto something that's red hot it just quickly evaporates and disappears into nothing it's just totally consumed uh, and the idea was a picture of giving an act of total dedication my life like a drink offering, Paul's saying, just completely poured out, just vaporized and consumed. I'm not holding anything back, the idea, the picture Paul's making here. So he's speaking of his life, of how he poured out his absolute best for the benefit of others, the Philippians and others that he served. The idea Paul's saying is, look, I didn't hold back, completely poured out. I, I gave my absolute fullest to invest in your faith, he says there, a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. And the idea of your faith, he's referring to investing in their spiritual development, to do things to help in the development of their spiritual life. And he refers to that investment in the terms of sacrifice and service. Sacrifice. In other words, Paul's saying it involves personal sacrifices to help other people. If we're not willing to make sacrifices of our time, our energy, our lives, if we're not willing to sacrifice in some way, we're probably not going to be very helpful towards other people in this world. Uh, we have to be willing to do that, to sacrifice of ourselves in some way. Paul gave of himself. And he mentions the term service as well. Again, to help other people in some way, we must be willing to, in some sense, render a service to them. Just like in the uh, business world, there are different types of service that are rendered in our world. You know, somebody who's an auto mechanic, they render a repair service. They fix things that are broken for other people and and quite honestly there's at times a service we must be willing to render to other people people are broken and they have problems and they're damaged and we need to be willing to help them put the pieces back together and in a sense spiritually help repair and restore maybe things that have fallen apart in their lives and again that's the idea we have to be willing to sacrifice we have to be willing to render some form of service and let me just say, again, and if you're a note taker, it might be worth even jotting down, it is a good thing to find something worthwhile to pour our lives into. Let me say that again. It is a good thing to find something, keyword, worthwhile to pour your life into. And can I just say in connection to that, there's nothing better to pour out of your time, your energy, your resources, your talents than other people. If you're looking for something worthwhile to pour your life into, my recommendation would be start with people. Two things are eternal. The very word of God that we're holding in front of us this morning and the souls of human beings. The only two things that are eternal on this planet. To me, that's why they're the two primary things I think it's wise to spend my time investing in because we all have a limited amount of time. 
There's nothing more worthwhile than to pour your life into being other-centered in your motivation of service and the reason that you do make sacrifices in this life. Let it be to pour out of yourself into other people. See, it's natural for me and I'm sure it's very easy for you to just be selfish. By nature, I'm self-absorbed. I'm selfish. It's just my natural inclination. I'm self-indulgent. And even it's very natural and normal for us to make sacrifices to serve ourselves. Lots of people make sacrifices. This room is filled with sacrificial people. I'm not saying that we don't all make sacrifices. Everybody makes sacrifices. The question we have to ask ourselves, and when we look at our world, it's, it's quite a scary example. Lots of people make sacrifices, but they make sacrifices to serve themselves somehow. They'll sacrifice for their benefit. They'll sacrifice for investing in themselves. It's a whole other thing to, in a revolutionary way, say, you know what? Contrary to a self-indulgent generation that I'm indoctrinated by and I live in, what if I live in a revolutionary way and I make sacrifices for the benefit of other people? And see, Paul says it's natural to be selfish. In fact, look at verse 21. He simply says, for all seek their own. That's a declaration. God says that. That's natural. All seek their own. That's typical. But to live in a revolutionary way the way God calls us to means to look for ways of pouring out of our lives to sacrifice for other people, to serve other people, to make it our aim to find ways of pouring of ourselves into other people, to bless other people, to help other people. Can I encourage you this week, look for ways to pour out of yourself to serve others. Look for ways of pouring yourself into something that relates to helping and benefiting other people. It's a revolutionary way. It honors God and it certainly draws attention in the generation that we live in. Paul goes on, verse 19, he says, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. So Paul informs them of his intention to send Timothy to them to, in a sense, find out and become aware of how they were doing there back at the church of Philippi. Remember, where's Paul writing this letter from? From prison. Paul's imprisoned for preaching the gospel faithfully at this point in his life. Paul's potentially facing a death sentence, which should remind us this morning that the current state Paul is in in his life as he's writing this is not exactly the most pleasant situation to be living in. He's in a time in his life where things are unpleasant. It's not favorable for him. His circumstances are stressful. His life currently is difficult. He's in a very unpleasant, difficult season of his life. And yet, as he says what he says here, he directly shows that nonetheless, though he's in a difficult hour, he is sincerely interested what in how they are doing. Yeah, I'm in a hard time. I'm in prison. I'm facing a death sentence, he says. But honestly, he says, I want to know how you're doing. I'm going to send Timothy to you, he says, because I want to hear about your current state of affairs. I want to know what's going on in your life. And he expresses to get that report via Timothy going to them. He says, that's what will uplift my spirit. You see what he says in verse 19? He says, I'll be encouraged when I know your state. The thing that will uplift me, he says, is when I know how you're doing, which shows me that Paul lived a life that was not consumed by his own personal affairs. Paul lived a life instead that seemed to take time to consider how other people were doing. And by way of application for you and I this morning, as believers as well, our relationship with the Lord should make us become less consumed with ourselves. And it should make us become more interested and more concerned with considering other people instead. My relationship with Jesus, the more I walk with him, the longer you and I have fellowship with him, should be making me less consumed with myself. It should be instead that spirit of Christ in me changing me, leading me to really be someone who takes time to consider, hey, how, how's somebody else doing? Because that's the way that we didn't live before we got saved. The world just revolved around us. 
and we did things selfishly and ignorantly. We didn't care what it meant or how it affected other people. But this radical change comes where Jesus begins to make us other-centered, where we actually are more interested in how others are doing. And this morning, great opportunity to evaluate, typically, are you so consumed with yourself and what's going on in your life and your affairs that honestly you seem to tend on occasion to neglect to consider how others around you are doing? Hey, listen, let me say this morning, the fact of the matter is whether in this room and all around this planet, everybody on this earth is facing challenges. Everybody on this planet right now is dealing with things in their own life. Family problems, sickness, financial struggles, problems at work, situations that are difficult, stressful circumstances, hurtful to everybody. We live in a fallen world. Listen, everybody, to some extent, in some way in their own life, is facing their own challenges. They're dealing with things. And we need to be careful that we don't get caught in this tunnel vision thing that happens where all we see and all we're aware of is everything that's going on in our world and all our challenges. And I'm not diminishing that, that we go through challenges. I'm not trying to be insensitive here. I'm just saying we have to be careful. We don't get caught in this tunnel vision where all we see and are conscious and aware of and seem to care about is all the things in the tunnel that we're going through of our own darkness and difficulties that we're facing. I find ultimately... It is very liberating and helpful for me to pause and to continuously take into consideration how other people are doing and even to ask and to inquire. In some ways, if all I'm doing is get caught in that tunnel vision, it just leads to me becoming more self-absorbed than I already am. And a lot of times then I just get depressed and fall into self-pity or, or I become angry because nobody's caring about me. And well, how come nobody's helping me? And nobody can, and, and it, it's really just detrimental. But I find on the opposite side of that, it can be very liberating to routinely consider how others are doing. Staying in touch with how other people are actually doing actually helps us stay in touch with reality. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9, speaking to suffering Christians who were struggling, listen to what he says. He says, know that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. That was his words to struggling people, to suffering Christians. He said, hey, remember something. The same things you're struggling with, people all around the world are struggling with the same things. People are suffering all, you're not alone and isolated. Everyone around you is struggling and suffering. Even other Christians are going through the same exact things that you are. And somehow that's helpful to just keep in touch with that reality. And Paul, because he was inhibited circumstantially, says in verse 19, he hoped to send Timothy to get this progress report of how their state of being was. Now, Timothy, remember, was kind of one of Paul's foremost protégés. He was somebody that Paul seemed to kind of take under his wing like an understudy. Paul became like a spiritual uh, mentor to Timothy, to Titus, men like him. And Timothy kind of served like Paul almost in the role of like an apprentice where he worked together with Paul and ministered with him Paul inv invited him to join his ministry team and to be a part uh, of the labor and the work of the gospel. And, and, and Timothy spent time with Paul through observation. He learned how to do ministry. And Paul specifically seemed to train Timothy into how to do ministry in a way that was healthy and was proper, which shows that Paul understood the value of spiritual transmission not just sharing the gospel and spiritual truths with the next generation, but raising up others to replicate himself to say, you know what, the more people I can replicate what I do in, the more people that can get things done. And Timothy seemed to be this type of person. Notice Paul commends him here of some of his life attributes and character in verse 20 to 22. Regarding Timothy, he says, for I have no one like-minded... He says, who will sincerely care for your state? For all seek their own and not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know Timothy's proven character, he says, that as a son with his father, he has served with me in the gospel. So in verse 22 there, Paul describes, notice how everybody was aware and had observed how Timothy served together with Paul in the gospel ministry, it says, like a son with a father. And the idea here, the picture Paul's painting is like a father, let's say, who has a 
business or a father who's a particular tradesman. Maybe he's an electrician or a plumber or whatever. And the son respects his father and the son respects what the father does. And he has an interest in a sense to want to learn his father's realm of service or his trade or to understand how to operate the same business. So this relationship develops whereby uh, they spend time in an ongoing relationship and the son serving together with the father learns the trade or learns how the business operates. And like a son with a father, there's this ongoing relationship where the son is taking tasks of responsibility. He's observing his father and how he does what he does. And Paul says, this is kind of what developed spiritually between myself and Timothy. Uh, Paul saw God's hand on Timothy's life as a young man. Paul invited him to join in him, uh, to join with him, excuse me, in the ministry labors. And Timothy eagerly attached himself to Paul's side, it seems. And he just worked together in partnership with Paul. And he wanted to learn. He wanted to observe. He paid attention. He watched how Paul did things and didn't do things. He participated. He took on tasks. And ultimately, Paul, in these verses, shows us he saw some extremely valuable traits in Timothy as he partnered together with him as an assistant in ministry. It seems that they were things, according to Paul, which were rare to find among many of the people who served with Paul in ministry. Keep in mind, Paul had lots of different people who served together with him in the overall work. He mentions lots of them in the New Testament. Uh, Paul had many people who were helping him, but there were some things in Timothy that were rare that Paul saw uh, that kind of made him, it seems, stand out in his usability. And so Paul speaks of these admirable qualities in verses 20 through 22 here. And can I say, these are wonderful attributes and qualities that we should all aspire towards personally. And as well, I think there are wonderful attributes and qualities that you and I should look for in the people that we choose to interact with in relationships and friendships. And I think there are also, thirdly, qualities that we should look for when we seek to entrust other people with responsibility, whether it be in business or whether it be in ministry or sharing in something that we do. The first thing Paul mentions about Timothy was a quality, Paul says, that he was, first of all, like-minded. Paul says, I have no one else among the many people who serve Paul that's as like-minded. Paul had many assistants, many partners, lots of people who participated in the ministry, many who worked under supervision, yet none of them ever had, it seems, as consistent and similar as, as a vision of Paul's outlook of how to do things, as Timothy apparently did, and Paul took notice of that. Paul said, I just have nobody else who's like, as like-minded as this guy is. Paul's kind of just saying, this guy just seems to get it. He kind of sees things the same way that I do. He shares my heart and he has, he's a consistent reflection of who I am in my ministry and he's a good extension when he steps in for me. He says he's like-minded, which speaks of possessing the same mindset or outlook as another person, to share a perspective. When you look at the term in the Greek, it literally means to be equal-souled. So what Paul recognized, he says, yeah, Timothy and I aren't the same guy, but he, he says it's almost kind of like we're wired the same way when it comes to serving the Lord, that we just kind of tend to see things with the same outlook and the approach of what's God's heart of how to serve others. And, and this guy just, he kind of understands it, Paul says. He gets it and appeared to just have the same mindset of approaching ministry and how it should be done in its motives in the methods and ways in which it should be done, in its model and style and pattern. And I'll tell you, that makes a wonderful partnership because then it brings consistency. And it brings continuity and steadiness and stability and it reinforces good patterns. And what it also does is it makes people who are being served feel safe and secure. Because when Timothy served the extension of Paul, the people still felt comfortable because of the fact that there was a consistency. And, and can I just say by way of application for us, as I said, let us all aspire in the realms of service where God puts us, whether in your job and place of employment or whether it's in an organization or a ministry. Can I encourage us all to be like-minded people? Whatever the vision is, whatever the, again, philosophy and approach is in your place of employment, you know what? Seek to be a cooperative employee. Watch how valuable that becomes to your boss. 
that you can say, okay, this is the policy. I will observe that and honor that. Not how can I challenge that? I don't know. What's a, watch. Less talent, more cooperation, way more value. Cooperative, like-minded. What's the vision? Be consistent to the model of where you serve. Again, in business, in ministry. And, and again, in your relationships, can I encourage you? In your friendships, it, look for like-minded people. Look for people who share your values. Young people, look for like-minded people who share the same moral convictions that you do, the relationships you establish. Interact with like-minded people who can reinforce and encourage what you believe and, and where you're at. And when you entrust other people to do things for you, maybe you're a boss, maybe you have a business, maybe you have a sphere of influence where at times you can entrust others with what you do, can I encourage you to look for like-minded people? Look for like-minded people to partner together with you. Paul also mentions how Timothy sincerely cared for the state of other people, how he didn't look out for his own interests. Look what he says in verse 20 again. He says, Timothy will sincerely care for your state, for all seem to, he says, seek their own and not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Remember, Paul's a pastor. Paul's a man with a pastoral heart. He has a shepherd's heart. He's concerned about the spiritual state and condition of the flock of God's people. And because of that, it mattered deeply to him that those who were served and those who were cared for were taken care of in the proper way. What I find very interesting as you study them in Scripture, Paul and Timothy really had very different temperaments. They had different personalities, even a little bit different giftings, it seems. Paul seemed to be a very strong leader. He was forthright. He kind of had a backbone of iron. Timothy seemed to be a little more reserved. He was a little more mellow in his temperament and personality. Uh, and, and yet, though they had different personalities and temperaments, at their core... They did share something that was the same and they had this mutual like-minded perspective that the most important thing is to care for the welfare of God's people. They shared a similar pastoral heart, a similar care and concern for the people of God and that the things of Christ would be what were the most important, that the most important thing was caring for the state of others and not looking out for one's self-interest. And Paul indicates in these verses by observation that he had taken note, it seems, among him, he says, verse 21, that typically most other people all seek their own. That is, Paul said, by observation, it seems that all, most people, tend to be interested in their own self-interests in their own agendas and kind of ultimately steering things towards what's best for them. And he says, and not the things, he says here, of Christ. Sadly, many people, Paul points out, he says, they don't serve in accordance with the patterns of Christ, who Jesus said, I did not come to be served. I came to be served. Or I didn't come to, to, to be served. Excuse me, Jesus said, I said, I came to serve. And he says, Paul says, I notice most people... They don't ultimately seem to have that core value in their heart. Somehow that always seems they get distracted, Paul seemed to observe, where uh, unlike their, you know, many people around Paul who were appearing to want to serve the Lord, and yet ultimately they were kind of distracted by their own agenda or self-interest, which would kind of get in there and mix it up. Paul says, you know, here's what I found. Timothy, this one guy, he's not driven by self-interests. He's like a gem. He's like a diamond in the rough, man. I finally found somebody, Paul says, who I can see where he actually wants to see the cause of Christ advance. He wants to promote Jesus and see people cared for. And Paul says he will sincerely care for your state. He genuinely wanted to just see people be helped. And I think for Paul, that was utterly refreshing. It was probably invigorating for him. It's almost like for Paul, this uplifted his heart. He's going, finally, a guy who's the real deal. <laughs> this guy is the real deal, man. He doesn't have no ulterior motive. He just sincerely wants to advance the cause of Christ and he's a proper reflection of what God intends in ministry and serving other people. And I think it just blessed Paul's heart in a tremendous way because genuine shepherds' hearts should be those who have a greater concern for what's best for the flock, not ultimately what's best for me. 
Or what can I get out of it somehow? Or, and, and Paul saw this as a wonderful thing. And for our own lives, again, for all of us, we should seek to be people who genuinely are concerned about the welfare of others and not looking always for what's in it for me. What's in it for me? And that's our natural tendency. And we have to fight that and deny that within us. And can I exhort you in the name of the Lord, if you want to serve in ministry, please, I beg you, don't step into it looking at what's in it for me. What's in it for me? There are too many people in ministry that have the role because they want a role of ministry, but they truly don't want to operate in the proper routine of what it means to be a minister which means it's not about you, it's what's best for the flock because you're a shepherd, you care for others. It's not what can you get out of it, it's what can you put into it, how can you minister to others? And Paul saw this in Timothy and it was an admirable quality. Thirdly, one final thing you see Paul mention of Timothy is that apparently this guy had a godly reputation that had observable evidence. You see what he says there in verse 22? He says of Timothy, you know his proven character. His proven character. That word character there means possessing excellent moral quality or traits of honorability and to be upright. Timothy, and notice the word again, underlined in your Bible, Timothy had proven character. Regarding his character, Timothy said, Paul says of Timothy, it was proven character. It had been tested over time. What Paul's indicating is both himself and other people had been able to observe through experiences in a season of time what Timothy was really like and what he really wasn't like. Timothy had been through some things, he had faced situations, and it gave the opportunity to reveal how Timothy actually handled situations, how he addressed matters. It demonstrated his character. Timothy was the type of person where people didn't have to wonder what he was really like. They had time to see what he was like. And Paul says his character was proven. It's been demonstrated. You didn't have to wonder or guess what kind of guy Timothy was. You know, sometimes, you know, we look at an individual and we find ourselves kind of going, you know, I wonder how, I wonder how this guy's going to respond. Or I wonder what he's going to do or what he's not going to do. That wasn't the case with Timothy. Over time and a season that went by, Timothy had been able to go through some things and there was patience and his character had proven itself. It was observable. People were able to ultimately see who he really was and who he wasn't. His character and reputation had been validated with evidence over a measured period of time. And again, for all of us, let us always see the value for ourselves as well as for other people of possessing proven character. Proven character. Character that has been time-tested and has shown itself to be reliable. That it's been demonstrated through seasons and situations. It's observed through experiences, indicating, hey, that person is stable. Revealing to others, yes, I am reliable. I've gone through some things and I've demonstrated who I am and whom I'm not. The Bible teaches a principle of proving character especially as it relates to leadership and roles of responsibility. Listen to what 1 Timothy 3 says regarding recognizing and appointing leadership in the church. Take notice in that chapter, 1 Timothy 3, the focus is all on character. It's not on ability. We put too much emphasis today on ability. The only thing mentioned about ability is apt or willing or able to teach. We build whole seminaries teaching people how to teach. And we have great presenters, but in their hearts, they're pigs, some of them. Forgive me for being so honest. God's not looking. God says, no, give me a character. Give me just a godly, consecrated life. I can anoint that. Give me a knucklehead, but if he's got character, I can use that. I can anoint that and work through that. Listen to what Paul ultimately says, 1 Timothy 3, in that section there. He says, one who rules his own house well having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man doesn't know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Again, taking care of the church is like taking care of a family. So the Bible says, look, the testing ground is, is look, if somebody's not effectively leading their own home, God forbid, please don't let them begin to lead in the body of Christ. They're not ready for it yet. It's just a standard, God says. It's a testing ground. 
It's a testing ground because it's like family life. He also says not a novice, meaning a new convert or an immature Christian. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside. What do people in the world say about that Christian? If people say, that seems like a solid guy, he's got a good witness. He says, a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and snare of the devil. Paul says later in that same chapter, but let these also first be tested, then let them serve. Tested first, then the opportunity to serve comes, the Bible says. Paul says later, 1 Timothy 5.22, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, too quickly. Wait, he says. So you don't end up sharing in things if you appoint them and then they utterly disappoint because their character wasn't right and ready to handle what God then begins to do. Proverbs 27, 21 says, The refining pot is for silver, the furnace for gold, and a man is valued by what others say of him. By what others say. What other people say about us a lot of times is the clearest testimony of what's really true. Look what Paul says, verse 23. He says, Therefore I hope to send Timothy at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. So Paul's informing them that his intentions were to send Timothy, but notice the, the language there, how he shares his intentions, but he also leaves room for what God's intention is and what God ultimately does. I find this interesting. Paul was clear about his intentions. He says, look, I trust in the Lord. I'm hoping to send Timothy to you. And I think I'm going to come shortly too. So again, when we serve other people, it's good to have a plan. And it's good to be honest about what our intentions are, to be clear with people, to let people know where we stand, what our objective is, not to overstate and exaggerate more than what we should and promise things we shouldn't. But at the same time, we don't want to fail to indicate, hey, I'm hoping that this is what the Lord's doing and, and this is what my, what my plan is and what my intention is. But by the same token and balance, notice that Paul was careful to speak of his plans and intentions honestly and humbly. You see what he's saying there? He says, I hope to send Timothy, not I guarantee I'm going to send Timothy. <laughs> I hope to send Timothy. He says, once I see how it goes with me, verse 24, he says, and I trust that I myself shall come to you shortly. In other words, here's Paul, here's this giant in the faith. I mean, you want to talk about after Jesus Christ, the, a godly man in touch with the Lord, and yet here's this giant in the faith, and yet he's humble and admitting that he does not automatically know what the will of the Lord is. He's not emphatically kind of, again, with, he says, I don't exactly know what the Lord's will is. I hope to send Timothy, and I think I'm going to get out of here and be able to come to you soon, but I guess we're going to see what God does. And I like this because it's humility and wisdom to admit that we don't always know 100% as a guarantee exactly what God's going to do. That we leave room when we share things. Hey, this is what my intention is. Communicate clearly. This is what my intention is, but you know what? I need to leave room because uh, the Lord may overrule. <laughs> I don't know ultimately what his intention is. I think I'm sensing this is intention, but honestly, I need to leave room because I hope and I believe this is what God's going to do, but uh, we'll see what the Lord ultimately does. And that's wisdom and humility to speak and share in those ways. Proverbs 19 says, There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel that will stand. James 4 says, Come now, you who say today, tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. He says, What is your life? It's a vapor. It appears and vanishes away. Instead, he says, You ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. See, there's just the balance there. This is what I think the Lord's leading. Here's what my intentions are. The Bible teaches planning. But in that plan, we also leave the door open to say, I hope and I think, but if the Lord wills, this is what our intention is, but we'll see ultimately what he does. And Paul here, senses he's limited, he hopes to send Timothy and then eventually to follow Timothy, but he sees in the meantime, you know what? I want to get something back to you, which brings us then to verse 25, Epaphroditus. Paul says, I can't go, 
But you know what? What I can't do, maybe I can entrust someone else to do and let someone do what I circumstantially can. Verse 25, he says, I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Here Paul identifies who we believe is the man who brought the letter of Philippians back to the church there. Paul describes him by the name Epaphroditus. And Paul and Timothy couldn't go, so Paul says here, I considered it necessary then to send Epaphroditus. And speaking of Epaphroditus, he calls him to the church of Philippi. He says, he is your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. It seems from evidence we have that the believers in Philippi sent a monetary gift to help out the apostle Paul this season in his life. Again, he's imprisoned in Rome because of the gospel and in that ancient culture major shock the government didn't pay for prisoners when you were imprisoned if your family and friends didn't provide food and clothing and care for you uh, the government just figured okay we'll have an empty cell sooner that was just kind of how it worked so the church of Philippi finds out oh Paul's been imprisoned again he has need and they want to help and meet his need. They have relationship with him because he pastored the church there and he went out as a missionary to plant the new work and, and they, they want to invest in his ministry. So it seems that they sent some type of a monetary gift like a missionary support donation to help Paul out. And it seems Epaphroditus was the one they sent as the one to bring this gift to Paul and to stay with him for a time and to just help care for him and minister to his needs. He was the one sent out on behalf of the church of Philippi. And Paul referring to Epaphroditus, wanting them to know that he was a true blessing when he was there with them, Paul speaks of him as a loyal, faithful comrade. He calls him my brother, which speaks of intimate relationship. He calls him my fellow worker, meaning he came alongside and he shared in the labor. He got involved in the tasks that were needed to be done. He was a faithful servant. Paul also calls him here a fellow soldier, meaning he stood with Paul. He kind of loyally fought through the battles that Paul was going through there, which just shows us that the Christian life is about establishing relationships with other people and establishing relationships where people work together because they realize, you know what, we're all in the same battle here. So we need to forge relationships and camaraderie and work together in the cause of Christ because we're all battling the same things. And Paul says in verse 26, he found it necessary to send him back, not because he wasn't a benefit, but Paul says, I'm sending him back because, again, I want to be sensitive to what's best for you and for Epaphroditus, he says he was longing for you all. That is, he was homesick and he was distressed because he heard that you heard that he had fallen sick. And he says, I know he wants to come back to give you a report to say, look, even though I got sick, I still was able to accomplish my task. Paul goes on, verse 27, saying, for indeed he was sick almost unto death, meaning he almost died. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So Paul validates that he was severely sick. In fact, Paul says he got so sick, it was sickness almost unto death. He was, he was tragically ill. And then Paul says here, yet God had mercy on him to restore his health. And he said, and it was mercy on me too, lest I be full of grief if he would have died as a result of coming here to serve me. And notice Paul indicates here that his healing from a deadly sickness was an act of God's mercy. And hear me in this. Remember, Paul had been used by God many a times to operate in miraculous healings that God brought into people's lives. However, Paul did not have independent ability to just heal anybody anytime. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says he had a sickness, a thorn in his own flesh, and he prayed, and he couldn't heal himself. We read as well that Paul told Timothy, drink some, not only water, but drink a little wine, he says, for your stomach's sake when frequent infirmities. In other words, Timothy had health issues. He had stomach problems. And Paul said a little bit of wine will help kill the bacteria. It was medicinal. Again, why didn't Paul just heal Timothy? It was Timothy. Apparently, Paul prayed, and, and Timothy didn't get better. He stood sick. Paul says as well in 2 Timothy 4, Trophimus, I left in Miletus sick. 
Paul said, I prayed for the guy. He was so sick, we had to leave him behind. He couldn't continue on in the missionary journey. My point very simply is this. Please stay balanced, okay? God heals. I believe that. God heals. But healing is a sovereign work of God. We should ask God to heal. We should believe that God heals. But ultimately, it's according to His will, plan, and preference. We should seek the Lord for healing. Every believer, listen, every believer is ultimately healed when they die. They're healed. (laughs) Some believers God chooses as an act of mercy to heal them while they're still in this life. But that's God's prerogative. 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 12, speaking of the manifestations of the Spirit, says the Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one as He wills, and then He speaks of gifts of healing. I don't see the Bible teaching a gift of healing. I know we see that on television. I read the Bible, it says gifts of healing, meaning sometimes the Spirit works through the prayers of someone who's open to the ministry of the Spirit, and sometimes the Spirit hands out gifts of healing and he heals some people miraculously in this life. But I do not believe, you can disagree, that some human being could actually be entrusted with the ability to just go around and heal everybody on this planet wherever they want. And if these shenanigan people who say they do that kind of stuff have that ability, then why are they not clearing out children's hospital instead of asking for money on their programs? Enough be said. Let me finish the last few verses. Verse 28. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice, Paul says. I can't wait to let you be able to be reunited. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness. Hold such men in high esteem. Paul says this guy is worthy of respect, someone to be admired and looked up to. And why? Here's the conclusion. Paul says, because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his own life to supply what was lacking in your service since you couldn't, he says, get here to me. So Paul says, this guy's worthy of recognition. He's the type of person that you should learn from. And what was it about him? Paul says, verse 30, that this one, he says, came close to death, not regarding his own life. In other words, Paul says, through his personal sacrifices and willingness to serve the cause of Christ, he almost lost his life in the process. Interesting, that little term, not regarding his own life, in the Greek, it literally is a term that refers to gambling. What Paul's saying is, again, to gamble is to take a risk. He says, this guy was willing to take a personal risk for the work of Christ. This guy was willing to gamble with his own life and his own welfare and take a risk for the cause of Christ, the work of the gospel, and to minister to other people. Can I leave you with this thought this morning? Many people in this life take risks. People risk and gamble in this life for lots of different things. For a career opportunity. People take risks and gamble all the time for things Can I ask you this morning to consider there is no better reason to take a risk than for the cause of Jesus Christ. If you're going to take a gamble with your life, if you're going to be a little adventurous or live reckless and take a risk personally once in a while, there's no better reason to take a risk than for the cause of Jesus Christ. And this morning, what might the Lord be asking you to take a risk regarding What might the Lord be asking you to take a personal risk regarding? Maybe serving the Lord in some way? Maybe it's sharing the gospel with somebody that you're terrified to share the gospel with? Maybe it's stepping out in faith? Maybe it's the risk of just doing the right thing, as hard and humble as that may be? Or maybe it's the risk of saying, you know what? I'm willing to let go of my pride and follow Jesus Christ. I need to be saved. Can I encourage you? There is no better reason to take a risk than for Jesus.